Two and a Half Admins, episode 30. I'm Joe. I'm Jem. And I'm Ellen. And here we are again. And let's get straight on with the news. And we have to talk about the devastating fire that OVH had in one of their data centers. Thankfully, no one was hurt. We're only talking about property and data damage here, but it was still pretty serious. Yeah, uh, I used to have servers in that data center. Jonathan Price and I were discussing it, and the Jupiter Broadcasting Minecraft server used to run off my server in that data center. Hmm. And we backed that up, but not very much, because it was just a Minecraft server that we did for fun. It wasn't uh, a business application or anything. And it was mostly, the, the backups existed for the purpose of undoing vandalism, not uh, restoring it if the server went away. It seems that quite a lot of people didn't have a disaster recovery plan, though, and didn't have proper offsite backups, and it's bitten a lot of them. Yeah, like I heard that some relatively large video game thing called Rust apparently didn't have any backups. It's like that, that makes little sense. No, they they didn't. So like everybody lost their get their all of their saved everything for like you know their character and their world or whatever in Rust. But the hilarious thing about that is Rust is actually a famously famously difficult like stab in the back survival game you know one of those where you start out from nothing so this was really just the real life version of like while you were logged off some player found your base and you know stole everything and your pants are on fire it's not really any different (laughs) but yeah like looking through some of the other stuff and they said you know there was some level of some government lost their list of who they vaccinated or something and it's like how do these people not have backups (laughs) like that's one of the nice things about OVH there is that it's easy to get a second server in a different data center from them. <laughs> but even that's probably not good enough for what you want to do here because you also have to guard against other things like just OVH entirely goes out of business or they just decide they don't like what you're doing with your account and ban you or your password gets compromised and somebody messes it up or you know they turn all your servers off because you didn't pay your bill because your credit card expired but the email address they were emailing you to didn't work anymore or something. You want your backups to cover against different levels of failure. Because you've got a secondary data center in your basement, right? Yeah, so the disaster recovery point for my business is is my basement, yes. And conversely, the disaster recovery plan for my, my house is the business servers uh, at the other end of that link. It looks like this fire actually started from a UPS then. Well, that's the suspicion. Apparently, the morning before the fire... They had a bunch of maintenance done on the UPS. And then that night, something started on fire. And it sounds like it might have been the UPSs. As most people know, data centers tend to have quite a bit of fire suppression set up. But as you might know, batteries are evil. (laughs) And battery fires are serious business. Yeah. And it seems like something went wrong there and the, the fire suppression system couldn't handle it. One of my favorite mornings at a uh, former small business client of mine, this client was an electrical engineering firm and they had, you know, one small rack with three rack mount servers in it and three desktop style 1500 volt amp UPSs, one for each server, right? But they had one of their vendors with one of their electrical component vendors started pushing them on the idea of having a nice, cool rack mount UPS to go with their nice, cool rack mount servers. So they buy one. And uh, the problem is, so this thing gets delivered to the office and I'm just like left with a request to come in over the weekend and, you know, get it sorted. Right. And I come in and there's a 270 pound rack mount unit in a box, clearly marked team lift everywhere. And there's just me to manhandle this thing into the rack, which I do and get all the servers plugged up. 
plug this thing up, push the power button, and it promptly catches on fire. And I've got <laughs> to unplug everything from it and pull this thing out of the rack and get it outside all on my own. That was a wonderful Sunday. Wow, that's not fun. I have learned since then the proper procedure for a new UPS is you turn the power button on and then you plug it into the wall and you turn it off and turn it back on again. And then you maybe think about actually plugging equipment into the thing. Yep. I had a slightly unrelated story uh, when I worked at the a power plant in the admin building, which is separate from the, the plant itself is where the data center is for all the, both the business and the automation network. And I was working in the test lab. This was a long time ago. So on the migration from Windows NT4 to Windows 2000 <laughs> on the business network, but they were having some work done on the air conditioner in the data center part of the, the building. And we had very specifically told the repairman, don't start soldering or anything without telling us first, because the data center is protected with Halon and you will die. <laughs> it's like literally... <laughs> It detects anything, an alarm goes off. If you don't silence the alarm within 30 seconds, it will remove the oxygen from the room and you will die. So I'm down the hall in the test lab working on this thing, standing by for when this guy comes to tell us that I'm going to need to do some work that might involve soldering or something. Uh, can you stand at the panel to cancel this alarm in case it goes off? Well, he forgot and started soldering on the air conditioner. And I just hear this ridiculous klaxon going off. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, right. So luckily, we had the, the presence of mind to unlock the cabinet for the alarm system and have it open at the end of the hall. And I did manage to make it down the hall and cancel the alarm with about nine seconds to spare. And the repairman didn't die, although he might have had brown pants after that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code ADMINS to upgrade and get 50% off a year's subscription to a new DevOps training site called Learned. The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code, and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade with 50% off with the code ADMINS. That's automation.link and the code ADMINS. Right, so this week I saw a story and I thought, ah, oh, well, Alan and Benedict will cover that on BST Now. That's not really relevant to our show. And then, Jim, you wrote a story about it and drew our attention to it. And this is that in kernel WireGuard is on its way to FreeBSD and the PFSense router. I didn't think this was going to be of much interest to us, but uh, turns out there's a bit of drama there. There is a lot of drama there. Um, there was already a little bit of drama there when I initially covered it, and that drama has exploded since then. So it, it turns out that uh, NetGate, the company behind PFSense, wanted to support WireGuard in their routers, which their customers have been begging them for for quite some time. But they didn't want to use the user space implementation of WireGuard that's already in FreeBSD and which their rival, the OpenSense router distribution, has been using for quite some time. They decided that they wanted proper in-kernel WireGuard, like the Linux kernel enjoys, and they employed a longtime FreeBSD developer, um, a single developer, to write it for them basically in his spare time on the weekends. 
he spent about a year doing it, and <laughs> this is where things get hotly contested. What we know for a fact is that the code that we ended up with was incomplete and not even vaguely up to production standards, should not have been run in anybody's primetime systems, but was merged into the FreeBSD kernel tree, uh, you know, very shortly before FreeBSD 13.0 release, which is due out in a couple of weeks. And as it turns out, even prior to that, had already been backported by NetGate to the 12.2 kernel, which they're using in their PFSense router distribution. When the WireGuard lead developer, Jason Donenfeld, took a look at this when he got the news that it was about to be, you know, merged into FreeBSD for realsies, he immediately discovered buffer overflows and validation functions that just returned true no matter what, and parts of the protocol that hadn't been implemented at all, race conditions that were mitigated by just sleeping and hoping for the best. It was a horror show, and he was aware that it was about to go out in 13.0 release, and he didn't want to make people mad by, you know, pulling the the trademark card, you know, and saying, like, you can't release this using my project's name because it's crap. So instead, he and a FreeBSD developer and an OpenBSD developer did, like, a mad week-long sprint, trying to basically rewrite the whole thing and get it up to snuff enough to let it go out the door. And at that point, it seemed like we had sort of an uneasy success story. Uh, they they got a working WireGuard implementation, and they no longer had known obvious buffer overflows and sleep to solve race, and you know all the other nastiness that I alluded to. But the problem now was that this, uh, to a lot of people's surprise, really made NetGate angry. Uh, they did not like the characterization of the code that they had paid the FreeBSD dev that they had hired, Matt Macy. They didn't like the characterization of his code. And they they kind of threw a fit about the whole thing. And as of now, it ended up with everything has been pulled out of uh, FreeBSD current, both Macy's original deeply flawed implementation and the almost certainly much better, but uh, much too rushed to be comfortable implementation that Donenfeld and company made. It, it's all out of FreeBSD now. And Donenfeld has instead set up a snapshot where you can build in-kernel WireGuard for FreeBSD as a separate module, uh, you know, out of his own repositories for now. And, and that's where development will continue, which is probably a pretty good story. And, you know, hopefully that will end up back in mainline FreeBSD later when it's had, you know, much more time to cook and be properly vetted and reviewed and what have you. But just, yeah, there's there's been a lot of angst and sturm and drama over the whole thing. Hurt feelings, uh, you know, NetGate feeling like they were getting smeared. But at the end of the day, code that absolutely should not have been used primetime anywhere got merged not only into their own product, but very nearly went out in a FreeBSD release, as far as I can tell. And Alan can probably weigh in more on that. Well, so the, the original version went into FreeBSD in November, and a few comments had been raised about it, uh, asking about, you know, can we work around some of the Linux APIs this way or that way? But nobody had been paying a lot of attention to it and, and trying to use it. You know, one of the problems with it seemed to be that there, there wasn't much documentation around it, so nobody knew how one would try to use it. 
in order to find out whether or not it worked. And so as things got closer to the release, it looks like some people were trying to use it and finding problems with it. And then when they investigated, that eventually led to the, the project to try to fix it in time for the 13 release. But even that, which got committed the other day, but I think uh, reverted since then or will be soon. Yeah, it's been reverted. Okay. That it doesn't make sense to replace the one that was under-reviewed with a different one that was under-reviewed. Which is the right outcome there. There should have been, in my opinion, a much more orderly process getting to that point. I'm still a little concerned. As far as I can tell, it it looks like had Donenfeld not come in and personally taken a look at it, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks to me like it was headed out the door in 13 release. You know, was is is there a process that would have prevented that from happening? There were still chances. Like, I don't know who had been testing it that much. I think that no one had been paying much attention to that feature. And maybe when it was people working on the release notes, they're like, oh, well, you know, we should add some documentation on how to use this. And they tried it and it didn't work or something. I don't actually know who discovered what about this stuff when, but I know that there, there didn't seem to be much activity or, or discussion about it in December or January or February. It all has happened in the last couple of weeks. Well, like, is there any kind of a process to make sure that code doesn't go out in release that has not actually been reviewed and, and vetted? No, it's been like that we have the alphas and the betas and the release candidates for people to report problems. And when they do, we'll either remove or disable a feature. But if nobody reports a problem, somebody can just commit code and it'll go out the door? Well, they can commit code and once every two years, there's a window where it goes out the door. Part of this is just a bit of unfortunate timing, right? If, if WireGuard had been committed a year ago when the project originally started or something, then there would have been more time for people to find the problem. But every commit is supposed to be reviewed, but not all of them get that much review. <laughs> part, of the, part of the problem is you can post something and wait for review and be waiting months and months and nothing happens. It's the problem with an open source all-volunteer project is that you know, review is not the fun work. Right. Uh, and you can't make anybody do it. A lot of it is done as a courtesy. You review other people's code, so they'll review yours. And it's important to the open source process, but it's a difficult thing to require because of how hard it is to get review, especially review in certain subsystems where there's very limited expertise. You know, I couldn't really review in general the, the WireGuard code because I, I couldn't tell you if it was right or not. We're not talking about the intricacies of WireGuard, though. We're talking about things like a, a validation function that literally has just been replaced with return true. Right, but that's buried somewhere in 46,000 lines of code. But if you can't find that, you can't really say that code's been reviewed at all, can you? It's hard to say. You know, um, it is the problem with any kind of code review. No matter how thorough the code review is, it's still possible for bugs to get in. But that's why we try to break commits up into smaller pieces so that are easier to review because there's more chance of actually reviewing all of it and not just getting to a point where your eyes glaze over halfway through. And it's like, you know, I can't actually sit here and read 45,000 lines of code and remember how this function interacts with that one. I'm seeing what looks to me like some real process issues that need to get fixed. And I think that FreeBSD is an incredibly vital and important part of the, the free software ecosystem. 
And when you uncover process problems like that, they should get some sunlight and they should get fixed. Yeah, it's just this is probably the hardest one to fix because you can't if you just mandate that everything has to be reviewed to a specific high standard, then how do you get people to do that review for free? Well, again, you know, we're not talking about a super high standard here. I mean, you know, one of the one of the issues that we were discussing was, uh, you know, very simple buffer overflow. I mean, you don't even need a human to find that. You run this code through something like, you know, the NSA's Ghidra, and it's going to have a field day with it. Right. This is not hello world that, you know, somebody's running on their laptop. You know, this is a major operating systems kernel, and it needs some pretty freaking high standards for review of the code in it before it goes out of the door, because it's not just like, it's not just a problem with WireGuard or Foo or Bar or Baz when it's in the kernel. When it goes out the door, that's in everybody's system. This one is still a loadable module, I think, but... Yes, I don't disagree. Like we said, in, in the end, the, the process is looking better now by doing the development out of free and having it available for testing via a module, which is a similar approach we did with uh, switching to OpenZFS, and it made it much easier to test ahead of time, and it eventually meant that the integration in the end was nicer as well. So hopefully that can happen, but I don't know that there are easy answers to some of these questions about the review process for FreeBSD, but I agree that there needs to be more process there. And it's just a matter of how do we make that work? Maybe in all seriousness, part of that needs to be when an already existing, very complex protocol or application that needs incredibly high code quality, like a file system or, you know, like a secure networking protocol, when that already exists somewhere else and you want to bring it into an operating system, like maybe that's one of the rules is like you you need to involve the domain experts in that who know that and, you know, kind of get them involved with it. Because like ZFS obviously was a very successful integration to FreeBSD, but mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure the whole ZFS team was pretty much on board for all of that. I don't know that it was the whole team, but yes. It's not just like some folks decided, oh, hey, you know, we'll, we'll do that over here and, uh, you know, we'll make our own with beer and hookers and it'll be fine. You know, you said like, if this had, if this had happened a year ago, it would have been in a much better position. You know, I mean, maybe that's kind of an issue if, you know, if you can time it right, you can get your thing in without a whole lot of testing before it's merged into, you know, release. Maybe that's also an issue. Possibly. You know, we've talked about now that it's based on Git, it's a little easier to be able to choose a different point. Specifically, if we had an issue with some system that was much more entangled, for example, if we somehow had to emergency decide not to upgrade to OpenZFS 2.0, we could restart the 13 release process on a version of FreeBSD from before that or, or something. It's easier to change where the fork point is. So the way it worked in the olden days was that there was this slush period where once this starts, which for FreeBSD 13, I think it was January, please stop making like new feature commits to FreeBSD for the next month or so. And people will just focus on fixing bugs and stabilizing things so that when we take the branch in February of what will become the stable 13 tree, there's no half-finished work in it. Where it seems in this case, WireGuard probably should have got called out in November and been reverted then. But it's kind of the problem with working on anything especially large is that other than 
being able to do it as this external module, like we're proposing to do with WireGuard now, which only really works for drivers and a couple other specific things like file systems, of being able to work on the code, collaborate with other people, and have it be testable without actually having to commit it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved my website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our late night Linux community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, get your $100 credit and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Let's do some feedback then. If you want to send your emails in, then show at 2.5admins.com for either just comments or questions for free consulting. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And thank you everyone who is already doing that with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate it. And remember for $5 a month or more on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So go and check it out. So Christian wrote to us, you were talking about bit rot and backups. I like to keep a separate hash for my valuable files. The hash is copied to the backup as well, which allows you to check the integrity of the data everywhere. So I can check the backup media before a restore and only proceed if everything is okay. I'm also independent of the file system and can use it for cloud backups. There are several tools that do this, but I prefer my own. And then he links to, I think it's called CheckBitPy. It's chkbit-pi. So uh, yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, uh, like I know tools like Bacula also include the hash of the file, the basically a checksum of the file in its uh, catalog database. Because uh, I've also, I wrote a paper on this in college about using Bacula as an intrusion detection system to detect when system files were modified by just verifying the checksums of files versus the backups. Uh, and that can be useful. You know, the nice thing with ZFS is you're basically doing this on each block of the file. And so if there is a problem, you can tell there's a problem with this one block of this one file and not necessarily the whole file. For certain types of backups, there's not a big difference between this one block of the file is bad and this whole file is bad. But if you're backing up something like, you know, a 50 gig VMDK of a, a virtual machine, having to throw the whole thing away because one block is bad could be worse than being able to say, this whole file is fine, except for this this one sixty four kilobyte section. There is one point that our listener makes that um, you know their solution works well for cloud backups where you don't have ZFS on both ends. And in that case, you know, yes, you're going to need to generate your own checksums, you know, externally. And there are a lot of tools for that. Like Alan mentioned, you know, Bacula will do it automatically. You can just run run MD five sum on individual files yourself. Uh, there's a tool called Parkive, you know, which sees a fair amount of use. The the big issues there are one that you don't have very many sums. So like Alan was saying, like you can't really fix a file. You have to just throw the whole thing away and start over again. And the other is that you have to you have to constantly be not only generating these things, but hopefully checking them. 
if you've got an MD5 sum or whatever of a file and you're not fairly frequently checking the file against that MD5 sum, the MD5 sum is of dubious value because you don't necessarily know when you've gotten bit rot and you no longer match it. So how often do you want to go through reading 50 gigs of data and recalculating MD5 sums on it to, you know, compare to the laboriously separately stored MD5 sum per file that you generated, you know, yada, yada, yada. Whereas on ZFS, it's all built in, it's per block, you know, it gets checked every single time you read the file automatically, you can trigger scrubs. It's, you know, (laughs) it's just a whole different world. Yeah, but it's kind of to Jim's point, having a backup is great, but it's no use if you've not tested it. So yeah, you have to test your backups and make sure that you can perform the restore and that the backup actually contains the data and it's correct. So yeah, like if you're going to do a non-ZFS backup, which isn't necessarily a bad idea, you know, we said to have three copies, two of them on ZFS and one of them on something else is is perfectly good. But if you're going to use this hashing thing, you have to remember that just finding out that your backup is bad is not really helpful when you're trying to do a restore. You kind of need to check it on a regular basis and find out it's bad and be able to fix it so that when you go to do a restore, it isn't bad. Well, that leads in nicely to Quentin's email. He was talking about the hard disk versus SSD debate. And he said, the last time I looked into this seriously, the rate of decay of the charge in flash type devices that were not plugged into power was really quite high. If you put stuff on a USB key or an SSD and leave it on your bookshelf, it's likely to have some serious bit rot after a couple of years, whereas magnetic storage is much longer lived and, assuming the bearings don't seize up, data stored on hard disks is likely to be accessible many, many years later. In either case, it's a good thing to take the devices off the shelf and plug them in periodically to keep them active. But with anything flash-based, you should probably do that every few weeks or months rather than every few years. Or, to put it another way, don't assume things are backed up because you have a copy on a flash drive in your drawer. Right. Like, you want to be testing your backups maybe quarterly or at least every six months. And so part of that is powering up the device and doing the equivalent of reading every file and checking its checksum, whether that's a ZFS scrub or using CheckBit or MD5SUM or whatever. you need to do that. And for some of the slash, you might need to rewrite it or something. And, you know, what good is your backup if it only contains a copy of the data from six years ago? <laughs> your backup usually needs to have uh, newer stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this a step further and just say, you know, for most people in most use cases, cold storage sucks and you shouldn't use it. I mean, yeah, your failure rate on cold stored, uh, you know, hard drives is probably going to be lower than it is for cold stored flash. But either way, you really can't trust it. You know, if you need to be like Alan said before, you know, you need to be testing this stuff. And if it's not hot, you're not testing it. So you're almost always going to be better off, you know, with something like a NAS with enough capacity and, you know, run regular scrubs. If you're not doing that, then you will have no idea when the bit rot creeps in. And if you've got a whole shelf, you know, full of cold storage things, you know, that you touch once in a blue moon, when are you going to plug them all in and go through all the, you know, to use Joe's word, ball ache of individually testing those things and running through all the storage on them and verifying them? And the answer is you aren't. And then one day you're going to need that data and the odds are entirely too good. It won't be there for you and life's going to suck. This is very worrying to me, right? Because I have got an SSD that I put in a laptop, set up all my editing stuff, 
all the software that I needed, all configured, ready to go. And then I took it out and put it aside so that if there was some catastrophic emergency and disaster with my machine, I could just grab that, put it in the laptop and get going. But what you're telling me is that that is not necessarily the case at all. And I might find that when I plug it in, it just doesn't work. At the very least, fire it up and let it be powered on with the operating system booted for several hours, once every three months minimum. Because the other thing about that is that, you know, yes, the uh, the the charge decay problem in Flash is very real. And Alan was kind of speculating earlier, like, I, I don't know, maybe you need to rewrite it. Well, that actually, the, the firmware, at least in theory, is supposed to do that for you. The SSD firmware is actually monitoring for, you know, the age of the stored values in the flash. And it's supposed to go through and rewrite it as necessary to refresh and, you know, mitigate that problem. But if you've got it sitting powered off in the corner for a year, that's not going to happen. It's also not going to have time to do that if you just turn it on and like boot to the desktop and immediately shut it back down again. So if you're really relying on the thing to be a definitely ready to go, grab it out of the go bag and get things done box, minimum every three months, turn it on and preferably use it and check it, but at the very least, let it run for several hours. Yeah, the the hardest part there is you can never, because it's under the covers in the flash translation layer, you can't actually tell if it's doing the rewriting and if it's done yet. With the laptop, you guys, it's harder. But I will say, like, you need two of them and you need to ping pong them. Like, when you power them up, you copy from A to B and then the next time from B to A and make sure that they always contain refreshed data. But, uh, you know, in a laptop drive, you're not easily going to be able to plug in two drives to do that with and a, a separate operating system to boot off of somewhere. So it might not be as practical, but I, I think it's a higher level of of paranoia than is Probably. really called for here. Yeah, just turn it on and use it for a little while. Once in a while is kind of what it boils down to. Well, and exactly in, th- in that main case, it, it will detect when it's no good anymore, and then you'll know to fix it while you still can. Instead of uh, when you need it, it'll be there, and you will take care of fixing it when you know it's a convenient weekend or whatever. Right. Well, good to know. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your feedback or questions. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.